to all my Canadian listeners out there, this week's guest is one of your own. She's amassed several of the major literary prizes in Canada, as well as the 2019 Governor General's Award for Fiction for her most recent novel, Five Wives. And her favorite book just happens to be one of my least favorites. Hoo boy. Welcome to your favorite book. And this week's guest is the author of numerous novels, including her most recent release, Five Wives. Joan Thomas, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, delighted to be talking to you. This is such a great premise for a podcast. Thank you so much. I, I felt that it was so fundamental. You know, everyone's got a favorite book or at least one, and people love to talk about the things that they love. So why not indulge that? Well, for sure. And so, Joan, I am so happy to have you on the show today. For everyone listening, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and about your work? Sure. Um, I'm Canadian. I've lived in Canada all my life. I live, you know, if you put a pin in the geographical center of North America, that's pretty much my city of Winnipeg. And um, I didn't start writing until I was middle-aged, so I've cranked out four novels in the last 12 years, which I feel very proud of. I shouldn't use the term cranked out because, you know, they really were labors of love. Um, mm -hmm. But it just seemed to, to take me a long time to find my voice as a writer. And then once I got started, I, I didn't look back. <laughs> um, and my books have, um, three of them have actually drawn on real events. So mm -hmm. I hesitate to use the term historical novels for events that are fairly recent, like Five Wives is based on a story that happened in 1956. Um, mm. But I really have loved exploring, um, bringing a fictional eye, exploring things that really happened. It's been a very rich experience for me. So one of my books was is historical. It was based on a pre-Darwin fossilist named Mary Anning from the south of England, who was, when she was 12, she found a a 30-foot marine reptile and um, became a very, very famous and sort of self-taught paleontologist before people knew that evolution actually existed. Um, mm -hmm. That was my one historical novel, but um, others have drawn on more recent events. That's really interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you is, do you consider your work, you know, historical fiction? And I really like that distinction you make between more recent events and, you know, more distant history. Like it's, I mean, things that happened yesterday could be considered history, but you wouldn't characterize that as historical fiction. So I like that distinction that you make. That's interesting. Well, some people define historical fiction as events that happened before the memory of anybody who's still alive. And I kind of mm. like that because um, the story I tell in Five Wives, many people do remember back to 1956. And many people also remember books and memoirs that were written by the individuals involved in that event. So they come with a certain prior conception of this story. And then yeah. I just try and open it up in a different way for them. Absolutely. And so um, to get everyone some context, can you give us a brief summary of Five Wives and the events that you're speaking of? Sure. Um, this is a story that I knew as a child because I, my family was, um, were evangelical Christians and we 
often had missionaries that visited our church. Uh, um, and this is a story about a missionary enterprise into Ecuador. It's a story mm -hmm. of five U.S. families that became really passionate about taking the Christian gospel to an indigenous nation that hadn't had any peaceful contact with the outside world. And they called these people the Alka, although we know now that the actual tribal name is the Warani. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very dramatic and tragic story because these five men, you know, felt so called by God to go into this territory and they were all killed on their second contact with the Warani. So uh, my story wants to look at the legacy of that event. They were, you know, regarded as martyrs by the Christian church, but I wanted to look at how it fit into our context of today, looking at Indigenous people and what this sort of intrusion has meant to them. And I also wanted to look a little bit more at the wives, because it's always the men that are viewed as martyrs and the heroes of the story. But I was really interested in the story of the women who were involved. Absolutely. The people that were left behind, so to speak, after the events of the whole incident. Yeah. And I mean, they had an astonishingly important role because two, all of the women except one stayed in Ecuador and two of them actually went into the rainforest and did successfully make peaceful contact with the Warani people and live mm -hmm. among them. And so that sort of takes us into the present in a sense, because the book looks at what that meant for the Warani people to have this kind of influence um, from the outside and, and everything that it brought with it. Interesting. And so um, hearing your summary, before we get into some of the content, so uh, another book that comes to mind for me when I think of, you know, women telling the stories of evangelicals in a foreign land, you know, multiple perspectives, I think of The Poisonwood Bible oh. by Barbara <laughs> Kingsolver. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that was one of my favorite books. I just love it. I just love the personalities of the girls and the, the humor she brings to what is really a very dark story, the, the, mm -hmm. the voice of that book. I really, really love it. And I was delighted when my editor in the marketing materials said, you know, Five Wives is for readers of Barbara Kingsolver's The Poisonwood Bible. I, was, I saw that everywhere too. And I'm like, you know, that can only be a compliment. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it was one, it was a wonderful uh, resonance for me. And so um, how would you say your book stands apart from, you know, similar stories, you know, by Barbara Kingsolver, for example, or other stories about um, evangelical missionaries? How, how would you say your novel sort of stands apart from those? Oh, I really love that question <laughs> because I think it is quite unusual in that I really wanted not to stand outside these women and judge them, although the consequences of that mission were quite catastrophic for the Warani people in the long term. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to get into their thinking. I wanted to um, understand what it means to embark on an enterprise like that, that in many respects was viewed as reckless and was so at odds with, you know, the reality that people were telling them, for example, that nobody had ever successfully gone into Warani territory and survived, but they, you know, they saw the will of God here. And I, I was just interested in that mindset, um, what it means to live with that kind of cognitive dissonance, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it is a, 
you know, it's a mindset that I know very well from my own childhood. And so I felt it very, I found it very easy to move into the thinking of these women. I found that, you know, some of the, you know, the Bible verses we learned as children, they're kind of in my bones. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I walk a very fine line in this book because I do question what the missionaries did. And yet I approach the women with empathy and I kind of insisted on looking at them as fully human beings with the full range of emotions. Um, so I think it's unusual in that respect. We're very um, more familiar with maybe satire about evangelicals or mm-hmm. attempts to caricature that kind of mindset. That's really interesting. And so coming from that evangelical background, but also being aware of you know, the, the darker implications of evangelical, uh, evangel, ev- what is the word? <laughs> is it- <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. Checking up on my, on my tongue here, but it's interesting to notice that dichotomy because um, I'll be personally honest with you. So as a person of color, my family is from India. Whenever I read narratives about evangelism in a way I'm a, I'm a little on guard just because of those innate ties to colonialism which can be traumatic for a lot of people that come from those cultures mm-hmm. and so I wonder is there a way to address the thoughts and feelings of these evangelical women make them true characters but at the same time address some of that discomfort felt by a broader audience yeah well I hope I did that I I'm not um I'm not didactic about it, so I didn't go into the story and say, this is wrong. But I think that um, I kind of just tried to lay this out, to lay out what it meant to look at these Indigenous people as as intrinsically evil, which is what the missionaries did. You know, they, they constantly talked about them as being a satanic, that they were controlled by Satan, that they um, needed to know the truth, that what the missionaries brought them was the only um, true way of salvation. And yet they knew nothing. They knew nothing about Warani culture. And Mm -hmm. when I moved into reading and learning about Warani culture, I was quite blown away, actually, by, you know, the reverence for the rainforest and the um, sharing protocols and the complex kinship structures and it was a very rich culture and yet the missionaries totally disregarded it and Mm -hmm. so um yeah i i'm i'm just interested in that stance in how you can take that stance to say we have the only true way and what the emotional consequences are for you in saying that in fact absolutely and i i think that's such an interesting perspective and you can look beyond you know, evangelicals and anyone who has, you know, one way of thinking, sort of one direction that there is only one path forward. That's an interesting, interesting perspective to, to pick at. And I really like what you say about understanding the culture that you write about. I think that shows a great deal of respect for this culture that is not your own, but at the same time, you choose to focus on the evangelical women, a culture that you do know, focusing on their lens, which I think makes a lot of sense from your perspective as the writer. Yeah, well, you know, I think the last few years politically have driven home to us that we are all living in our own bubbles to a certain extent, mm-hmm. in our own ideological bubbles. And when I look at these missionaries, I don't have the luxury of feeling 
totally superior to them because I did have that sort of upbringing. And so I just, I just wanted to interrogate it. And I guess I wanted one of my main goals in doing that was because in my, um, the culture that I grew up in, this story is still not questioned. These men are still viewed as martyrs. Yeah. And th this story is told, it's part of the curriculum of Christian schools. Um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in how the roots of racism go so deep. And I think they go so deep because we hang on to this kind of story that vilifies or, or otherizes people like the Warani in the rainforest. So um, it was kind of interesting. Last year, just after the book came out, the actual grandson of one of these missionaries came to Winnipeg to my city to speak at a missions conference. And his family has continued to work in Ecuador ever since. So three generations have followed this. And his story has not changed in any respect. Mm. You know, it, he still tells it the way it would have been told in the mid-1950s. And when the notices for his missions conference went out, they said his family serves the savage Alka Indians in Ecuador. So it, you know, they still use that kind of language. <laughs> so I have to say that, you know, just just interrogating that and and um, holding up a different version of of that event was important to me for that reason. Narratives don't change unless we really look at them. I I often like to say that you know nothing's really a given. You have to continue to dissect these narratives. You have to consider to question all the perspectives surrounding it. And so I like that you're breathing new life into a story that I had personally never heard before, but from what you're telling me has been told over and over in certain communities. And I think that's really the only way we, we gain a new perspective is if someone dares to make that jump. Well, yeah. And I mean, I thought a lot about the role of narrative as I wrote this book, because, um, you know, on Amazon, people would sometimes post a review saying, well, you know, Joan Thomas's book is fiction, but I'd rather read the true story. I'd rather read because there's very famous memoirs, like one of the wives, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote a memoir through Gates of Splendor that has sold half a million copies. It's still in print. It's very popular. And so they would say, I would rather read the true story. And, you know, I'm really interested in the kinds of truth that fiction tells because she told a story that she shaped the narrative in a way that suited her purposes. Um, yeah. And I just brought other kinds of truth to it, I guess. Because I mean, in, in those biographies, I'm sure we never really think about the perspective of the Warani, for example. No. We never really get to see what, what their perspective was on it. Exactly. So that's a narrative that that we need. If we're not hearing it from them firsthand, we at least need to hear just the possibility that they have a narrative too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a very deliberate choice on my part because there's some fantastic stories known about the Warani people, like a woman named Ayuma who left the rainforest um, and made contact with missionaries even before the missionaries went in. Um, she has a fantastic story, but I chose not to tell the Warani story because mm -hmm. I just feel that the missionaries, you know, they took so much culturally from the Warani people that I just, I was not going to intrude in that way. Mm -hmm. So I had to find other ways to bring a different perspective, you know, through, through a little, through flickers of insight that the 
women had or through fictional characters like there's a catholic priest who's very critical of their mission so i had to find other ways to kind of hold up a mirror to what they were doing and i i really respect that choice i mean now the the concept of own voices and publications in the publishing industry has become a bit of a hot button issue but i i speak for a lot of you know people of color or people that might be othered in society i'm sure would agree with me in saying that the own voices movement, it shows a lot of power. It shows that there is room to grow in publishing for these voices. And that by, you know, making space for those voices, the way you mentioned with the uh, Walrani stories, I, I think there's a way to honor their perspectives without taking up their space, which I think is beautiful. Yes, I, I totally agree with you. And, and it, this is really part of our discourse in writing and publishing in Canada um, mm-hmm. And we have such a, a vibrant, new, fairly new resurgence or surgence of Indigenous voices in Canadian literature. And, and a non-Indigenous person like myself is very aware of, the, of you know, that the um, sort of where the lines are, I think. Like, I, I kind of felt with these missionaries, I really got their point of view. <laughs> we were all raised as missionaries when I was young. We were always supposed to be talking about the gospel to our classmates and this kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. I felt like that was my story, but the story of the Warani was not. Absolutely. And that's so interesting. I feel like I could ask you a million questions about growing up evangelical, but that would be you know, <laughs> veering away from the podcast a little bit. But I, I guess my, my last question here is um, you make the choice to sort of craft a multi-generational narrative, which, you know, goes beyond just the operation itself and then delving more into the futures of these families. And what inspired your choice to do that? Yeah, and this was a lot the subject of a lot of conversation with my agent and my editor because um, they initially felt that I should just deal with the 1956 story, but I felt that this story had so much relevance to the way we live today. To the to, um, I guess um, you know if I think of the kinds of industrial intrusion into the Amazon that is. Is so concerning right now, um, the intrusion of oil into the Amazon and and just our our um, attitudes to people that are considered other within our society. I just I wanted to bring it home. I wanted this not to be a 1956 story, so I actually created fictional descendants. I didn't want to be researching the lives of the children and grandchildren of these missionaries. Um, people that are going about their private lives. I didn't want to be intruding in that way. And so I created some fictional um, descendants and told their story. So we have a a child who's um, David, who is still, you know, pretty committed to the mindset he grew up with, but it's sapping his his energy Mm -hmm. in a certain sense. And then we have his daughter who is breaking free uh, and questioning everything. And it's been very interesting to have this book read by, uh, it's been read by a lot of fairly devout um, Christian people in Canada. I visited book clubs that are associated with churches. And it, it's been very interesting to talk about that with them because a lot of them have said, Abby, the granddaughter here, she is our grand, 
she's our grandchildren. Mm -hmm. They are questioning in the way that she's questioning. So I really wanted to bring it home in that way. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And I, I like that, you know, you've been able to reach out to those communities and engage with them. And, you know, there's learning on both sides there. And it's good that they can see in literature the perspective of their grandchildren. Yeah, I've been very moved by their open heartedness to this book because they have, many of them have really um, kind of, you know, been very uh, devoutly committed to this story of Operation Alka. It's one of the most famous missionary stories. And yet they have been very open in looking at what I did in this book. That's wonderful. And Joan, before we move on to talking a little bit about your your favorite book, can you tell everyone, you know, where we can find more information about you? Um, yes, I have a website. So you can just Google me. It usually comes up really fast. Uh, JoanThomas.ca. You have to remember the .ca, all my American listeners. <laughs> and uh, I'll just say that if um, right now, because of the pandemic, we're not traveling and I'm not doing publicity gigs in the way I would have done, but I'm doing a lot of Zoom presentations. And if there are book clubs out there among your listeners that are interested in reading this book, I do book club, club visits. So I'll just say that um, readers would be um, encouraged to invite me through my website if they'd like me to drop into their book club. That's wonderful. That's such a wonderful gesture. And I know there are people that are listening that run book clubs, so that'll be very informative for them. So definitely check out Joan's website, .ca, all you Americans. I always type .com, but... <laughs> and then um, now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the book you wanted to discuss for the show, which is A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. And so um, I have so much to say about this book. I have a very interesting history with it. Ah, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and then so before we um, get into that, as, um, as always, we try to keep our reviews of books spoiler free. This is the kind of narrative that doesn't have a lot in terms of conventional spoilers, but there are, you know, the arcs of characters, how they come and go that you'd probably want to be surprised by. So we're going to do our best to keep things spoiler free. Just a heads up for you, Joan. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then um, in terms of a summary of this book, so for everyone who hasn't read this before, just a brief few sentences. Uh, in this work, we're introduced to Sasha, a young woman with kleptomania, and her boss, Benny, an aging musician and executive. From there, the narrative spirals out into tangential characters, all part of their pasts, presents, and futures, and all on separate roads to ruin and recovery. And so this is a really interesting book. I mean, it's very critically acclaimed. I believe it won the Pulitzer in 2011. Uh, Jennifer Egan, I've certainly seen her books everywhere. I think she had a release Manhattan Beach a few years ago that got a lot of press. And so it's a well-known book. It's gotten a lot of acclaim. And so I'm happy to talk about it. Um, before we get to my opinions and perspectives, Joan, can you tell us a little bit about when you first read this and what your thoughts were? Um, I, I believe I read it when it came out. So that would be 2011. And I actually read it twice. <laughs> and now before this podcast, I read most of it again, not all of it, but um, it because it's set up as separate short stories. Um, I picked and chose the ones I wanted to reread because some of them I really love. There's a lot of formal experimentation here. Yeah. So one of the stories might be a magazine feature 
profile of one of the characters. And famously, one of the chapters is a, a PowerPoint presentation. Yes. Um, but the more conventionally um, told stories just blow me away in their um, the richness of the language and the the lyricism and the grace with which she enters these very flawed characters, um, the vividness of it. I find it such rich writing. And I was really um, drawn to her method of doing this deep dive into one character at one point in time. And then, of course, shifting, who knows, a decade mm -hmm. to a character that was peripheral in the previous chapter. I was interested in that. I was interested in the way the story kind of lives in those spaces between chapters and the the way the characters refract off each other. Um, and when um, I was asked to suggest a book to you, I thought of it because although my own telling of the story of Five Wives is more conventional, it does have some of the elements of that structure in that I do deep dives into seven points of view um, and each one sort of passes the baton of the narrative forward. So I think I learned from Jennifer Egan in terms of her structure. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is one of the the books. It, it, it's hard to even call this either a collection of short stories or a novel. I've read that Jennifer Egan herself doesn't really characterize it as one or the other concretely. And so I just keep calling it like this work because I don't know what to refer it to as. Because mm -hmm. you know how you have these interrelated characters but the short, the, some of the stories do stand on their own, but still rely on, you know, context that we've gotten. It's a very interesting work in that sense. And I like what you're saying about point of view. I think that's one of the, the highlights of this book is all the different ways she plays with point of view here, with all the different narratives she takes on. Um, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I have to fill in for you um, my history with this book. And yes. <laughs> so... Um, for listeners of this podcast, almost every episode I've done on this show, the books have been new to me. I hadn't read them before. I believe, thinking now, I think I have only read Ender's Game way back in the early days of the podcast. I had read that one before, but almost all of the other books were completely new to me. A Visit from the Goon Squad I had read before, and I actually read it almost three years ago at this point. It was either 2017 or 2018. I was a graduate student in New York. And I read this book and Joan, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Back then, it was like my least favorite book ever. <laughs> I gave it like one star on Goodreads, I oh, think. Wow. And I was like, what is this? How did this win prizes? Like, yeah. I was so angry at it. And I, I'm trying to remember why I felt that way. It, it's easy to just see that one star on your Goodreads and not even remember why you put it there. But I yeah. think for me, it was... To me, it felt like a lot of unlikable people doing unlikable things. And then there mm -hmm. were all the like thematic twists and turns. You'd like get to know one character and then all of a sudden you're with this other character. And yeah. I think it just threw me for a loop. It was a lot of experimentation and it just didn't feel like it was for me in that sense. I was yeah. just like, this isn't my kind of book. And so when yeah. you recommended this book, I, I didn't have the heart to say, oh, no. <laughs> But I also knew, you know, there's a value in rereading books and challenging yourself to look at things in a new way. And enough time had passed that I came back to this book and I reread it. And I think the reread did change my opinion in many ways. Mm -hmm. So, so 
did you find you liked parts of it better than other parts? I did. Or? I did. And yeah. um, there were definitely some stories that stuck out to me a little bit more than others. I think the main thing I loved about this book, though, is what she does with the narrative craft. So her writing style, it just feels effortless. You do have this experimental uh, elements of it. Most of them are still accessible. I think there's a couple exceptions where things aren't as accessible, and I'll get to them. Um, I think it was a nice blend of genre, the way we've talked about. Um, I really like what she does with point of view, not just by having all these characters, but she goes between first person, second person, and third person in this book. Like, mm-hmm. And I, I rarely see second person done well, but I think the second person story she has in the point of view of Rob, I think that was really interesting. Yeah. And so it has to be done sparingly, and I think she really achieves that there. So I think craft-wise, this book, now that I'm a bit more of a mature reader, a bit more of a writer myself, there was a lot to appreciate about that. And I, I know you said you mentioned you liked some of the more conventionally told chapters a little bit more. Um, I guess I'm curious to know, what did you think of the famous PowerPoint section? <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. The New Yorker just ran a, an article about narrative gimmicks and the lead for that article was this PowerPoint presentation <laughs> in a visit from the Goon Squad. It is indeed a gimmick. Um, I found it a little bit saccharine. This is a story that's not very sentimental, you know, that's mm-hmm. quite um, cool-eyed in the way it looks at its characters. But this PowerPoint presentation is done by a little girl about her family. And I think um, because of the novelty of the form, you're intrigued and you stay with it. But if it had been more conventionally told, it might seem like a kind of a sentimental story. Right. I definitely feel that. I remember the first time I read this, I thought the PowerPoint section was the one section I liked in the whole book because it was mm-hmm. it was new, it was different. Um, and I, I, I liked the idea of a PowerPoint, um, especially in the point of view of a child. We get a couple of child perspectives, but not quite like this. But looking back on it now, while I still did enjoy it, I do agree it is a little gimmicky. I think if you took it out of the book, it wouldn't have, you know, taken away very much in terms of how this book is structured. Um, but I I still found it interesting, even though it is a bit of a gimmick. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting that you moved to a more positive position with respect to the book, because this time I hadn't read it in, you know, as I said, since 2011 or 12. This time, um, I found, I just thought, relax already to the reader. (laughs) You're trying too hard. It felt Mm -hmm. like it demands so much of the reader initially. There's so many characters coming at you. And I really um, just thought, it, it made me wonder in the intervening years if I have been, if I've stopped challenging myself as much in reading and I want stories that that don't really ask me to work quite as hard as this one asks you to work. That's really interesting because yeah, this book does demand a lot of you. And I found the one chapter that I think still fell flat for me the way it did the first time was the magazine article. That Mm -hmm. one makes you work the hardest, not only because it's a new form, but also there's so many footnotes and they meander. And maybe this is just me, but anytime I see long footnotes in a novel, I think of David Foster Wallace and I'm not a David Foster Wallace fan. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I didn't reread that one. (laughs) I didn't. I didn't. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I don't blame you there. There's just this level of pedantic pedantry. I can't find my words today. Oh, yeah. Pedantry is that uh, a yeah. word? <laughs> there's there's just that level of pedantry there, and I'm just like, oh, really? Like I didn't need this, and I think it speaks to some of the characters as well because. I think Benny and Sasha are probably the two most interesting characters in this book. And I liked the chapters that focused more on them. And then we veer off into some more tangential characters that are only like loosely related mm-hmm. to them. And I found myself losing interest with some of the Dolly portions, yeah. the Kitty Jackson yeah. portions. That's where I think it veers off for me. I agree. I think it's a real trick though, to use this sort of experimental it's almost like an archive of different um, styles and artifacts and still retain a narrative through line in the way that mm-hmm. she did. And uh, um, I really, to the extent that I did that in Five Wives, I really love that method. I really love holding up contrasting personalities in that way and letting each of them tell a section of the story. It's um it takes care of a certain, like you struggle with momentum when you're writing a novel, if you just have one point of view. But when you have these different points of view, there's always an energy in the contrast between them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and certain parts of these stories, like you can imagine some of these events are referenced multiple times, which makes this more of a cohesive work. But then you think, how would this story change if it was told by X person's perspective instead of Y? Like mm-hmm. it keeps you thinking that way. Like, the idea of a drowning person being told in the perspective of the drowning person, mm-hmm. that's bold. What if that was told from a character who watched or a character who wasn't there? Like there's so much to think about there. That's true. Yeah. You're just constantly questioning. And that's what I think, you know, made me overall favorable towards this book the second time around. I think, you know, it takes a certain amount of growth as a reader. And I think it also takes getting away from the idea that there has to be a likable character, because I think it's a struggle to find a really likable character in this book. <laughs> yeah. I, I was cheering for Sasha the whole time. Right. She was stealing people's wallets in the first, on the first page, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think out of, I think out of the group, Sasha, like she's the easiest one to cheer for. And I think <sighs> the, if the PowerPoint chapter does anything, it makes her a more sympathetic character because, oh my gosh, she is trying hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She really is. And yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for like those, those motherhood stories where the characters are really trying hard. Like I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And this time I was more aware of that overarching theme of time. You know, I think the goon squad, as I understand it, is, is the assaults of time. Time is like a, you know, violent thug, a, a gang that, that crashes into your world and yeah. reorganizes everything. And I, and I, I thought that was very deftly done through the book. And I think she does a really interesting thing with her prose. I wanted to mention this earlier, but she has a few points in the section. She'll be talking about a character and then she'll summarize that character's entire future in like a paragraph. True. Um, Yeah. Did you like that? I thought it was really interesting. I I feel like it's, those are, that was probably one of the things I didn't like the first time. And now I like it now because it, it really just honed into that idea of time, just kind of doing what it will and that's why this book doesn't have too many spoilers in the conventional sense, because in many ways, she spoils it for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she she kind of dared to use an omniscient perspective, which is, you know, not used very often in contemporary writing. 
No, definitely not. I can't think of too many examples where you dare to use an omniscient perspective. I mean, the only ones I can think of are, you know, Greek tragedies and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I guess it was the perspective of time, of the good yeah. squad. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I love that. I think that's one of the things I probably missed as a younger reader, too. I was like, what is this good squad they keep talking about? Yeah. Who are these that I couldn't find them? <laughs> but it's much more clear now that it is about the passage of time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm trying to think of what else. I remember now I'm getting into just things that made me laugh. I remember the whole section about Dolly and the general. I remember reading this book and I'm like, am I reading the same book? I was so confused. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, now that I understand how everyone fits together, it made sense. But I guess I still struggle with this kind of being split into two main works in a way. Yes. So the threads about um, Sasha and Benny are one novel. And then there's, yeah, yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, Well, I don't know if I could make a little leap over here to Five Wives. But in Five Wives, I all of a sudden at a very critical point, part in the narrative, I bring in a total outsider. He's a um, photojournalist with Life magazine based on a real person, Cornell Kappa. And I just parachute him into this crucial juncture on the story, in the story, and a real outsider's point of view. But, you know, as a writer, I I'm kind of in love with all of the possibilities that something like a, a real outsider's point of view provides you as a writer. Um, yeah. Would so you say it, that it, this book influenced you in that way? I think it may have. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I, there's a lot of value to an outside perspective. You think there is? Mm-hmm. Well, I do. For, yeah, for sure. In in Five Wives, my characters are so embedded in their own ideological bubble that they don't see things cr- critically very often, and so I just needed a a neutral. Um, more objective voice, I think. And he provided it for me. And and he was interesting to me because he was, you know, we're at the point where my characters are going to be bombarded with grief. And he was grieving for his brother who had just died. And, you know, I found him, he brought an emotional awareness to the scene that, that made it work for me, even though he knew nothing about their faith. Um, you know, he was totally a stranger to their kind of thinking, but he had other qualities, I think. Um, yeah, that that's really interesting. And you mentioned sort of being sort of secluded in that faith. And I mean, you could make a similar leap to, to Goon Squad because so many of these characters are so self-absorbed and they're unable to see any perspective outside their own. And you need these multiple perspectives to really see these characters for who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think of a character that you talked about, um, a drowning it told in the second person. And I think of that character who's, he's, he acts in a terrible way. He really betrays the person that he loves. And yet, I just found, I found love for him within the framework of the whole novel, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're raising a for me, a question I struggle with a lot as a writer, and that is whether my characters have to be likable, or is it enough that they feel real to my reader? Yeah, I think the key that I've come to, the more I've read and the more unlikable characters I've met along the way is, I don't think characters have to be likable. I think you just need to understand them a little. Yeah, yeah. If they feel real and authentic and you can connect to them, 
Yeah. yeah. You understand their, their motivations, like their motivations have some basis in what you've presented for them. They're not, you know, your stock evil villain that's evil because they're evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this brings us to a nice juncture here. And so A Visit from the Good Squad is a hard book to compare with other books. But if we're going to take a stab at it, Joan, do you have another book that you'd recommend for someone who might enjoy this book and is looking for another read? Well, I've been, um, through the course of our interview, I've been sort of um, flipping through my mental, (laughs) (laughs) mental, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, flipping through a list and I've changed my mind a couple of times. I think the book I'm going to suggest to you, it's not at all structurally um, comparable to a visit from the goon squad, but it's just very, a very powerful book in terms of its, the depth of its understanding of its characters. And it just, Mm -hmm. it uses humor in a way that I love. And it is by a fellow Canadian, but she, her books are available in this, in the States and had a fair amount of attention in the States. Her name is Miriam Taves. Mm -hmm. T-O-E-W-S. Do you know her work at all? The name sounds familiar, but I don't think I've read any of her work. Okay. Well, I'm going to suggest A Complicated Kindness. So it's actually, she's from Winnipeg as well, and it's actually set in a small town. Her family was Mennonite. Um, and so she also, like Five Wives, is working with ideology and the prescriptions of growing up in an ideological setting like that. Um, so I guess, although I hadn't, I didn't, recommend it for this reason, but it has quite a bit of similarity to Five Wives as, as well as as the comments I made about a goon squad. That's a very interesting choice. I, I haven't heard of that book at all, and I'm certainly going to check it out. And what I do with all of the recommendations we provide is I provide links to check out those books. And so hopefully if I can find a complicated kindness on my databases, I will certainly add that book to the list for everyone to check out. I always love discovering a new author. Great. And so the the book I'd like to recommend, this one's a a little more well-known, and I took more of the inspiration from what are other novels with multiple points of view that I really love, you know, novels that have interconnecting stories, but all these different characters. And the one that came to mind was probably one of my favorite reads of 2020, which is Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Uh, Eberle. I have it on my my bedside table. (laughs) Oh, you need to read it. It is, yeah. It's a gorgeous collection. It really challenges so many of our perspectives. I mean, it features what it means to be female, so to speak, or just sort of the spectrum that that can encompass, and particularly what it feels like to be a Black female. I mean, she really takes on the concept of Blackness as well, which is an interesting contest, uh, contrast to Goon Squad, which is overwhelmingly white. Yes. Um, yeah, true <laughs> not enough. Many of color there. Yeah, but um, basically, girl, woman, other. I believe it's you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen perspectives, and it's hard to juggle all of those characters. But I think Bernadine Evaristo does a great job with all the different voices. Some of these narratives also interconnect. Um, we really get some beautiful stories here. They are. It's another one of those things I would characterize as a work. It's not quite a collection of short stories. It's not quite a novel in the conventional sense. It's a work of fiction and do with that what you will. But mm-hmm. it's deserved all the prizes it's gotten. And I recommend it to basically everybody. So here I am doing it again. All right. I'm eager to get into it. <laughs> oh, I think you'll enjoy it. I yeah. think you'll really like it. And there's no PowerPoints or magazine articles. No. <laughs> 
And so, Joan, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. I have loved learning about your perspective as a writer, about your work, and of course, talking about this book. And I'm so grateful that I gave this book a second chance. I probably wouldn't have picked it up again on my own, considering the strong reaction I had before. But I think there's just a value in rereading and knowing that there are no opinions that are set in stone. We grow as readers and we we grow as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so delighted that you also read Five Wives and that we've had a chance to have this conversation. At the beginning, before we started recording, I asked how you were doing in, in this difficult time and you sort of said, you know, um, we have books. <laughs> <laughs> and we that, have books and the pandemic will not take them away. Yeah, yeah. So it's been wonderful to have your questions were so thoughtful. Your response to my book was was so informed and and sensitive. I'm very grateful for that. I appreciate it. I did really enjoy your book. I think it deserves the praise that it's gotten. And I urge my readers to check it out. I will have a link in the show notes to to buy Joan's book as well as to Joan's website. I definitely recommend picking up Five Wives. Joan, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Vika. Thank you all for listening. As usual, tune in every Thursday for new episodes of your favorite book, as well as keep an eye out on the first Sunday of every month for Pulitzer Prize, a new series I started up here in 2021. If you like the podcast, of course, I appreciate your support. Like our socials at YFB Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And if you're an Apple listener, I'd really appreciate those ratings and reviews. They really help us out. And as always, don't judge a book by its cover, but do judge a book by its lover. See you next time.